0: Because Jesus is coming back, we can look to the future with confidence and courage. Our hope of life after death is grounded in the truth of God's Word.
1: Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock.
0: Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to pick up the narrative uh, at verse 13. A little just a little background. The Thessalonian church was a very young church. Paul and Timothy and Silas had come there in probably 52, uh, 51-52 AD, and they probably spent a few months there. They were run out of town by opposition who didn't want them there for obvious reasons. Uh, Several months later, Paul had sent Timothy back to the church to kind of see how they were doing. It had been a It's a very pagan culture, a very sensual culture. They were a brand new church. There was a lot of temptation, and Paul wanted to know how they were doing, so he sent Timothy back about 300 miles north of of Corinth, where this letter was written from, to check in on them and to strengthen and encourage their faith. And Timothy came back a few weeks later, a few months later, and said, they're doing well. They're standing firm in their faith. They're being persecuted, but they're not flaking out. But he said they've got some concerns about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You taught them that Christ was going to come back, and quite frankly, it seems pretty clear that they believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. Paul was pretty convinced at this point in time that Jesus could come back in their lifetime, which is a little different perspective. Nobody at that point thought it would be 2,000 plus years before he returned, so they thought it was imminent, and of course they were eagerly waiting for him to return. The problem was, from the time Paul had left until the time that Timothy got back, a number of people in this church had died, gone to heaven. And the Thessalonian believers wanted to know what happens to you if you die before Christ comes back. Like, where do you go, and what is your experience? Uh, Did they miss out on the blessings of Christ's return because you died before Christ showed up? So Paul writes them in this section, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, 13 through 18 really, about the experience of Christians who died before Christ's return. And this is really more of a pastoral uh, discussion than an academic discussion about eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the last things or end times, uh, etc. So it's really meant to encourage them and to comfort them, but we're going to dive in and I'm going to give you a little more as you probably would expect, a little more detail uh, about eschatology and what the end times are. And the reason this is so applicable to us is every single one of us have loved ones who are in heaven. I was talking with a dear friend yesterday, and I said, you know, at this point in time, we know more people in glory than we know here. And as you get older, that really becomes your experience. You will know more people in glory than you will here. Now, you may not remember them all but that's not because you don't know them, it's because your memory is sliding. It's not sliding, it's in free fall, let's just own it, right? (laughs) What it is. Verse 13, let's get back to serious stuff. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do those who have no hope. Here's the principle. Our hope of life after death, is grounded in the truth of God's word. Our hope of life after death is grounded in the truth of God's word. And Paul says, look, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't just want to be misinformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you not to know what happens when you die. If there's one thing in life you want to be accurately informed about is you want to know what happens to you when you die. There is no more important topic literally, than your eternal destiny. Now, God is the God of truth, and he wants his people to be informed. God never operates on ignorance, and he doesn't want you to operate on ignorance either. And he he uses the word, those who have fallen asleep. The word asleep is a very common metaphor. It's a common biblical expression for those who have died. People who die often look like they're asleep, and the Bible uses the word sleep often to describe death for the Christian, because just like sleep is temporary, death for the Christian is temporary. You know, we fall asleep every night, kind of, sort of, and we wake up multiple times during the night, kind of, sort of, but it's, you know, I'm speaking to you, I know who you are, I'm talking to me too, but like sleep is temporary, sometimes very temporary, so death is temporary for the Christian. For the believer, this term, asleep, really refers to the temporary suspension of bodily activities. That's death. The temporary suspension of bodily activities until the rapture occurs and our bodies are resurrected. Jesus used the term, asleep, when he was talking about Jairus' daughter. Remember, Jairus was the temple official and his daughter had died, 12 years old, and he said, she's not dead, she's sleeping, and everybody laughed at him. Of course, then he raised her from the dead, right? Stephen was stoned to death. The text says, at the very end of Acts 7, it says that he fell asleep. So it's used to describe a temporary state. And when Jesus' good friend Lazarus died, Jesus described him to his disciples. He says, he's fallen asleep, but I'm going to go and awaken him. Well, the disciple says, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up on his own. He doesn't need you to wake him up. They didn't know that he had died. Jesus knew that he had died, and Jesus, of course, woke him up, uh, resurrected him from the dead, but he used the term fallen asleep as a metaphor for death. Now, when you die, your soul is separated from your body. Your body's buried in the ground, and your soul instantly goes into the conscious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the Christian dying is falling asleep here on earth and instantly waking up in heaven. Death is the portal, the doorway from this earthly life to eternal life in heaven. i never forget talking to my father. He died of lung cancer at 71. When you smoke for 55 years, that, you, that can happen to you, right? And I asked him, how do you feel about dying? He said, oh, death is the portal. It's, it's, he used that word, the doorway. I'm done with this life, and I'm in the next life in a moment of time, in an instant of time. So whenever the Bible uses the term asleep in reference to death, it always describes the body. The body is asleep. The body is dead in our terminology. There is no purgatory in a biblical uh, sense. There is no spiritual coma. The soul never sleeps there is some that teach soul sleep but that's nowhere taught in scripture 2nd corinthians 5:8 says to be absent from the body is to be what at home with the lord instantly right philippians 1:23 says paul was speaking and he says i want to have the desire to depart and be with christ and the very last word stephen said in luke 9 or acts 9:59 was lord jesus receive my spirit Instant translation from life in this plane to life in eternity, right? There's no cemetery for the soul. Your soul is either connected to your body or it's in God's presence. But your soul is never asleep, right? The soul is always conscious. Now, this word asleep in Greek is the word koima or koimitarium where we get the word cemetery which literally means sleeping place. Cemetery means sleeping place or dormitory. You know, dormitory is where people sleep. Cemetery is a dormitory for the dead, right? So a cemetery is where the body of the Christian sleeps temporarily. Temporarily until it's resurrected. And the term asleep sleep is also interesting in Scripture because it implies rest from our work on earth and relief from all the aches and pains and hassles and troubles and trials and really especially the obnoxious people that you don't ever want to see again, right? So that's one of the one of the benefits, right? Yeah. Present company accepted as someone said, "Yeah, very well." So Paul says, "I don't want you to be uninformed so that you will not grieve, you will not sorrow as those who have no hope." And this grief is He's talking about extreme agony. He's talking about pain. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about sorrow. He's talking about heartbreak. And those of us who have lost loved ones, you understand what it's like to walk around with a four-inch knife in your chest all the time when you have lost a loved one. That's just what it is. God designed us to feel sorrow when a loved one leaves us. But Paul says it doesn't end there. He says, I'm not criticizing grief. You should grieve but I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope, those who don't know Jesus Christ. Those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior have no hope after the grave. And their grief is literally profoundly eternal. For them, for those who do not know Christ, death is the end. The end, period, full stop, of everything. Everything good, this life, purpose, love, relationships, So when you talk to somebody who does not know Jesus Christ, beyond the grave lies nothing. Separation from loved ones, the judgment of God, uh, an eternal void. Without Christ, they will never see their loved ones again, and that is agony. Christians, on the other hand, never have to say goodbye, ever. We say what? Until we meet again, and because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf, we will surely meet again. And so death for us is temporary separation. We say, I lost a loved one. You didn't lose a loved one. You know where they are. Matter of fact, they're safer there than here by far. But we lost contact, and that's what breaks our heart. We just don't have connection in the same way. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Here's the principle. Because Jesus died and rose again, those who believe in him will enter his presence the instant they die. Because Jesus died and rose again, those who believe in him will enter his presence the instant we die. Now, if we believe is not a question. It does not imply uncertainty or ignorance. Here in the Greek, it's a first-class condition. If being since. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So the foundation of our hope in our future reunion with loved ones in heaven is the historical fact of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. See, Christianity is not speculation, it's not metaphysics, it's not mythology, it's not human opinion. It is history in space and time. Here on earth, involving God physically coming to earth as a human being in human form. So our faith is documented in verifiable human history, space and time. Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf is what lays the foundation for our hope of heaven. Because he did what? He paid the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross in our place. So we don't have to pay for our own sins. He paid for them with it. So on the cross, He literally made the great exchange. He took our sin on Him and He gave us His righteousness. So the Father's wrath, which is just against sin, fell on Him and He gave us His righteousness. So Christ looks at us with the righteousness of Christ. He says, You are perfect. You are utterly perfect utterly forgiven, utterly pure because the blood of Christ has carried away your sins and he gave you his righteousness. And that means he now declares this just. means not guilty. The judge has banged the gavel down and said, in Christ you are not guilty, you are acceptable to God, you are saved from eternal death, separation from God. And that historical evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is incontrovertible. Remember, This didn't happen in a corner someplace. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ was public. Most of the city was witnessing at that point in time. When you read the historical record, it's obvious there were large crowds, and he was literally executed at an intersection. I mean, you know, travelways, highways, we would call them today. Lots of people saw it. His burial was in a sealed tomb, a guarded tomb. 16 soldiers guarding it, and you know, so it was pretty obvious that it was proof that he was dead. And not only did he die, he rose again from the dead, which demonstrated this conquest over sin. This word resurrection means to raise, literally, raise from the dead and restore to life. We know that Jesus rose for lots of reasons. After his resurrection, he appeared on 10 separate occasions. Between the resurrection and the ascension, there's 40 days. And in that 40-day period, he appeared on 10 separate occasions to over 500 people. In some cases, it was one-to-one. Mary Magdalene, it was one-to-one. Simon Peter, it was one-to-one. In some cases, there were groups of two. On the road to Emmaus, he showed up to two folks. Sometimes he showed up to 10, uh, the disciples. And one time, it says, to a group of more than 500 at one time. So there's lots of eyewitness evidence as to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when Paul wrote this most of those eyewitnesses were still alive. And they could collaborate what Paul recorded and what eventually became the New Testament. What's even more amazing, if you want evidence of the resurrection, many, 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 many people and all the apostles literally were martyred for their faith. They were martyred because they gave testimony as to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I've heard of people dying for good causes, but I never heard anybody dying for something they knew was a lie. Nobody's going to lay down your life for something you know is a lie. You're going to die for something that you know is the truth. So when God the Father raised Christ from the dead, it signified, number one, he accepted Christ's sacrifice for your and my sins. It also means that everyone who follows Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ, will be raised from the dead just like Jesus was raised from the dead, and Jesus promised his followers in John 14, 19, what? Because I live, you shall live also. 1 Corinthians 6, 14 says, God has not only raised the Lord Jesus, but will also raise us through his power. So Christ's resurrection is a historical fact. Your resurrection is the promise of God. And the fact of Christ's resurrection is what guarantees our resurrection. We have the same certainty of Christ's return, by the way, as we do of his death and resurrection. Paul says, God is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus are those who have already died. So the Thessalonian church is saying, we've got brothers and sisters, family and friends who have died and gone to heaven. What's going to happen to them? And Paul says, when Christ returns, he's bringing them with him, right? They will not miss out on the rapture. They will not miss out on the resurrection of their bodies. When Christ returns to planet Earth, the spirits of those who have already died will come back with him. Because that's where your spirit goes when you die, right? Straight to the Lord. So when Christ returns, he's bringing your spirit back. To do what? Well, among other things, to meet your body, which happens to be in the ground. So the participants in this rapture are those who are one, alive and remain. Some of us will be alive when Christ comes back. And also those that are already fallen asleep. Those have already died. Jesus promised this, firstly, in John 14. John 14, 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled or anxious. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Your KJV probably says many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the context, it's the night before Jesus died, he's told his disciples, I'm leaving, I'm going away, and you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later. And they're anxious about being left alone, clearly. And so Jesus comforts them by explaining his plan. And he says, I'm going, but I'm telling you where I'm going, number one. Where I'm going is my father's house, which is heaven. Number two, he says, I'm telling you why I'm going. I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you. So I'm going to prepare a place for you to live. And I'm telling you that I'm coming back to earth later, and I'm going to come get you and I'm going to get you and take you to heaven with me so that we can live together forever in heaven. So the separation when I leave is temporary. The reunion, the life together is eternal. It lasts forever in heaven. It's permanent. So heaven is a place of conscious existence where God's people will live together with him forever. Right? Jesus is leaving them in John 14 for the express purpose of preparing a place for them and coming back and getting them and bringing them to heaven to live with him forever. Does that make sense so far? Say yes. Yes. You got the picture. Good. Now what he doesn't tell them is when this is going to happen. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now Paul's simply saying, when Jesus was here on planet Earth, he didn't give the details of the rapture, the sequence of who would be resurrected first, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I'm going to give you the word of the Lord, which means the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul by his divine authority, this passage of Scripture, and Paul says this is the word of the Lord about this particular part of what's going to happen in the future. So, at this point in time, it seems really clear that Paul fully expected Christ to return in his lifetime. So he now is going to explain the sequence of events. The Thessalonians were concerned that their loved ones that had already died were going to miss out on the reunion between Jesus and his people. And Paul assures them that believers that are still alive will not have any advantage over those who have already died. Your family and friends that have already died are not lesser saints, they're not going to miss out on anything. As a matter of fact, those who have already died are going to be raised from the dead first. Some wag is commented that that's because they have six feet further to travel. Of course, I think that's shallow thinking. The, the, that's sorry, isn't it? Isn't that just sorry? Ah, so what happens when you age? Your jokes are just so bad, so bad. Anyway, so the, part of the reason, let me just sidebar Part of the reason we can look at this and smile is because Jesus Christ made death conquerable. It is not the end. And we have to remember that when we look at this. I'm just, that's just a sidebar. The plan of the rapture, the plan, the sequence of this Series of events that's going to happen is outlined in verse 16 and 17. And John Stott has given us a four word outline, and I'm going to follow it. The return, the resurrection, the rapture, and the reunion, verse 16. The resurrection, or the return and the resurrection, verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. First, here's the principle. When Jesus returns from heaven, he will physically resurrect the bodies of his followers who have died. Let me restate that again. When Jesus returns from heaven, he will physically resurrect the bodies of his followers who have died. So there are seven stages in this resurrection, this rapture event. First of all, it says the Lord will descend from heaven. Jesus, the bridegroom, is coming back for his church, which is his bride. He's not sending an angel. He's not sending a, a saint. He's coming himself personally. He's coming from the third heaven where God dwells to what we call the atmospheric heaven surrounding the earth, what we call the sky, the physical atmosphere, the physical sky. We know that Jesus is now in heaven because Hebrews 1.3 says, When Jesus had made purification for sins, he's talking about his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, he ascended to heaven and did what? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we know where he is. Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Remember in Acts 11 when Jesus was raised, ascended into heaven, and the the disciples were staring into heaven because it says the cloud received him out of their sight, And Acts 1.11 says, there were two angels, and they came and spoke to the disciples, and they said, why are you looking into into heaven? This Jesus who has been, what? Taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So we know where he is. Jesus is in heaven. He's coming back from heaven to pick up his bride and take her to heaven with him. So he's going to come from heaven, and he's going to come with a shout. That's the second point, with a shout. Calusima, it means a word of command. It's a military term. If soldiers are at ease, this would be a command, fall in, right? Martin Luther translated it into the German as stand up. The bodies of the saints who have died are lying in repose, right? In the grave. And this is the command to stand up. Fall in rank, fall in order, get ready to move out, because you're going to be resurrected and raptured. So in God's perfect time, one day Jesus will shout a command for the resurrection and the rapture to occur. Jesus predicted this in John 5:25. He said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will what? Live, the Bible gives us an illustration of this when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Remember, three days after his death, his sister says, "Lord, his body stinks. I mean, he's decaying at this point in time." And Jesus said, "Don't worry. Only believe." And he stands in front of Lazarus' tomb and says, "What? Three words. Lazarus, come forth." And he came forth. Now, if Jesus had not used Lazarus' name, his command would have emptied every tomb in all the planet Earth. <laughs> because if the Lord says, Come forth, He is the Lord of life and death, and He commands life, and every tomb would have been emptied at that point in time. And someday that's going to happen. At this point in time, it was just for Lazarus. So the shout of command comes from the commander of the heavenly host, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of life and death. And the first group to respond to that voice are the saints that have already died and are in the grave. And God himself is going to supernaturally recompose their bodies into their glorified resurrection bodies. We'll talk about that later. And they will rise up out of the grave and be reunited with their spirits who are descending from God with heaven. And that is going to be some meeting. Amazing meeting. So the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout, and third, with the voice of an archangel. Angels are God's messengers, and they often put in motion God's plans. You know, God was going to have his son born of the Virgin Mary, and he sent a messenger named Gabriel to set that plan in motion by announcing to her that she was going to become pregnant with God's son. So there's only one mention of an archangel in the Bible, which is Jude 9, who refers to Michael. Daniel 12 also refers to Michael having a special association with Israel. There may be more than one archangel, but that's the only one mentioned. The voice of the archangel probably is simply relaying the command from the commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, to the angelic host. It's time to move out. The resurrection is going to take place. Go to your positions, and we're going to put this in motion. Number four, with the trumpet of God. Trumpets are mentioned throughout Scripture. Multiple t- cases, multiple scenarios for multiple purposes. Most often, trumpets in the Bible were either used as a call to battle or a call to meet God in worship. In Exodus nineteen sixteen, God is going to come and give Israel the Ten Commandments. And he comes down to the top of Mount Sinai. And it says the mountain shook earthquake. And there was a big cloud, a pillar of cloud and fire. And it says there was a voice of a trumpet. And you get the impression that this is like standing in front of a jet aircraft engine. I mean, you could feel it. It was so loud, the ground shook, the trumpet of God. And it was calling Israel to come out and meet with God. So it was a call to assemble. That's probably what this is here. It's the trumpet of God. It's assembling God's people to meet Him in the air. And believe me, you will hear that trumpet and respond to it if you are in Christ. What will happen is the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this is, he's talking about physical bodily resurrection where the bodies of believers who have already died will be resurrected first. Paul often uses the term in Christ. Those who have died in Christ. it it, it refers really to the intimate union the believer has with Jesus. Christ is said to be in us, and we are said to be in Christ, and that's worth a whole sermon series. But what's important to remember is, once you're in Christ, you're always in Christ. Dead or alive, it doesn't matter. Jesus said, no one can pluck you out of my hands. That's security. If you are truly saved... You are always saved and you will respond to the voice of God and the trumpet of God and those in Christ who have died will be the ones who are raised first. So, this resurrection, this rapture seems to be limited at this stage to those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ's body, which is the church, which began in in Acts 2. So, we have Old Testament saints those who are in heaven, right, because of faith, before the church, and we have tribulation saints. There's going to be a lot of people come to faith in Christ during their tribulation. Millions and millions and millions. We studied that in Revelation five, six years ago. We're talking about this particular section is the church, which is before the tribulation and after the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. You and I are in that cohort, right? The church is, we're in the church age right now. So it appears, at least to us, now there are competent scholars that disagree on this, so I, I'm not banking on the future, but I believe Scripture clearly teaches that this refers to the saints in, in, uh, that belong to the church, saints only. There is another resurrection that Old Testament saints will be raised, and tribulation saints will be raised, so they're going to experience the resurrection later. But like I said, I believe there are people that would disagree with me on that, which is fine. Um, we can inform them on the way up. <laughs> Some of you are very competent. you can do that, right? Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Here's the principle. When he returns, Jesus will catch up and carry away his church to be with him in heaven forever. When Jesus returns... He will catch up and carry away his church to be with him in heaven forever. So that's point number six. And the, 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 this word caught up is really the essence of where we get this word rapture from. It comes from the Greek word harpazil. Uh, the Latin word is rapio, R-A-P-I-O. With, with, and they both mean the same thing. It means to be caught up, to be snatched up, to be taken up, to be seized by force, to be carried away. It's a real violent word. It's a, it's a forceful word. This is not a, well, we're going to go quietly. You though know, no, God comes back and he grabs you and snatches you and catches you up, right? In John 10, 12, Jesus is talking about what? A wolf that snatches the sheep. That's a violent term, right? And scatters them. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven, and I had these inexpressible visions, the abode of God. Acts 8.39 records that after, remember Philip, the evangelist, God says, go to the Gaza road, I've got a divine appointment for you. He goes, there's the Ethiopian eunuch, the queen of Candace, her treasurer, her CFO, and he's in a chariot, and God says, the Holy Spirit says, go talk to him. And he leads him to faith in Christ. You're reading Isaiah 53, and it says, after Philip had baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, quote, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Now that's supernatural, sudden transport. Bodily transport from one place to another place, right? In the same way, Jesus is going to come from heaven and he's going to remove his people from planet Earth instantly and forcefully, right? When it, this should be comforting to us because it says, Jesus said, No one can snatch you out of my hand. And you say, well, who would be interested in snatching me out of Jesus' hand? And what is he called? The prince of the power of the air. So we're going to meet Jesus in the air. It's called enemy territory. But Jesus Christ has no peer. He is Lord of all. You will be snatched from planet Earth if you are living and you will be snatched from the grave if you're dead, and no one will pluck you from Jesus Christ's hand. And we will then meet together with them in the clouds. Now, this is the great reunion with Christ and his people. Family, friends, loved ones have already died, and those who are still living, we're all going to meet together with Jesus in the air. By the way, this is also a rescue operation. The saints who are living on planet Earth that's you and me, are dealing with sin and suffering and decay and death and the coming wrath of God on planet Earth during the tribulation, right? So Jesus Christ is going to rescue the living saints out of that scenario. If you've already died, your spirit is coming down from heaven with Jesus and will meet your glorified body coming out of the earth. And you're really going to like this body. Really good. We're going to talk about that. If you are still alive, you will be instantly changed into your glorified body, and you will rise to meet Jesus and your loved ones, with your loved ones who have previously died, you'll go up together. We'll meet the Lord in the clouds. God often speaks to humans out of clouds. Clouds in Scripture are a, a dwelling place of God. Remember, God came down from Mount Sinai in a cloud to give them the law. When Jesus was baptized, it says there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a cloud and the voice of the Father came out of the cloud. So this is very, very common practice that God operates out of a cloud, uh, probably to protect us because he said, no one can see me and live. So we're going to meet that uh, in the air at that point in time. Point number seven, the last stage of the of the rapture, the resurrection, is to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So the last stage of this event is that both resurrected dead believers and translated living believers will meet Jesus in the air above the earth. And, even more so, the promises that once reunited, we will return to heaven with Jesus and live with him and our loved ones forever. No more goodbyes, no more until we meet again, no more sin, suffering, sickness, sorrow, Satan, sin, temptation, gone, gone. However, we have a rather large problem that has to be solved. Both those who have already died before Christ returns and those who are still alive in Christ's return, when he does return, will have to be changed before they can be instantly transported to meet Jesus in the air. The problem is stated in 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now this I say, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Your body currently would not handle supernatural sudden transport to heaven. Like it wouldn't survive. So we have to do something about that. Our flesh and blood bodies right now were created and designed to live on earth in earth's atmosphere. They cannot survive heaven. They cannot survive the divine encounter with the glorified Christ. See, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, in a spiritual sense, they died all at once, instantly. Their relationship with God was broken through their disobedience. But also at that moment, they began to die physically. That's when the body began to decay The cells don't reproduce like they used to. We have all sorts of interesting processes that lead to physical morbidity, which means you're falling apart, and ultimately mortality, which means we die. That came as a result of sin. So, physical death is the separation of the body from the spirit. Spiritual death is the separation of the spirit from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, both of those became operative. Spiritually, we became separated from God instantly. That's when Adam and Eve said, oh, we don't have any clothes on, and we feel guilty. And the Lord says something interesting. He finds them and he says, who told you you were naked? Like, you didn't know there was clothes. You didn't know you were shamed to the point where you needed clothes. That's what sin did to us at that point. So it separated us from God and began the process of us physically dying. And God had warned him about that earlier in Genesis 2.17. He told Adam, From the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will what? Surely die, right? Genesis 3.19, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is why we die. There is no other religious belief system world religion, whatever you want to call it, that gives us the origin of death and gives us the solution for death, except in the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So sin separates us from God, who's the source of life. Well, if you're separated from the source of life, then death is the result, right? Now, we all inherited Adam's sin nature. And our human bodies are subject to death and cannot enter into the eternal state of heaven as we currently are. You know, if you're an astronaut and you are in the orbiting space station and you decide that you want to go for a little joy walk by opening the airlock without a spacesuit, it won't be just a migraine. You will literally explode. You're operating in a vacuum. Your body, earthly body, is not designed to operate in the vacuum, that's why you have to have a spacesuit. Our earthly bodies aren't designed to survive space. And the Bible says our earthly bodies are not designed to survive heaven either, and so God has provided a way for our bodies to live in heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That is probably one of the greatest understatements in Scripture. We have no idea the profound change that will occur. Both those have already died. And those who are still alive on earth are going to receive bodies that are specifically designed to live in heaven. Now, the contrast between our earthly body and our heavenly body is is described in 1 Corinthians 15.42, and I want you to compare the contrast because they are really dramatic. Paul says, it is sown a perishable body. He's talking about your current body. He's talking about our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies. Your earthly body is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heavenly. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. Here's the principle. When he returns, Jesus will give each saint a glorified body designed for eternity. When he returns, Jesus will give each saint a glorified body designed for eternity. So our old present body here is perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural, earthly, mortal. I resemble that. Our new future body will be imperishable, glorified, powerful, spiritual, heavenly, and immortal. Now, I know we throw that word extreme makeover around. You ain't seen nothing yet. This ain't cosmetic. This is change from the inside out, right? Now, we don't know exactly what our body will be like, but we are told in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. So it seems that as Christ's appearing, we'll receive resurrection bodies like His body was after His resurrection. There was some continuity between Jesus' earthly body and his resurrection body. His disciples could recognize him, but there was also some discontinuity. They couldn't recognize him right away. I mean, there was something different about his appearance as opposed to what it was before. Furthermore, Jesus' body post-resurrection didn't seem to be limited by space, by time, by geography, by gravity, by closed doors, locked doors, walls. I mean, he went through stuff and the laws of this universe no longer applied to that resurrection body. Now, I have to issue a little disclaimer here. We don't know how much of Christ's post-resurrection physical abilities were due to the fact that he's God, he's deity, or whether we'll inherit the same capabilities. But 1 John just said, we will be like Him. So I'm persuaded that this is a pretty good model for what your resurrection bodies will be. Christ our brother, and other passages of Scripture, we will be like Him. What we do know is that our bodies will live forever with Him in heaven in eternity, and our bodies will be profoundly different from the one we currently have. 1 Corinthians 15 says these changes will occur in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The Greek word for this word moment is where we get the word atom from, A-T-O-M, atomic. It'll change in an atom of time. Now, that was the smallest known object, obviously, for a number of years. It says in the twinkling of an eye, this is not how fast you can blink. You blink 15 to 20 times a minute and are never conscious of it. It's the flash of recognition. You ever seen a picture? of someone that looked familiar, kind of, and all of a sudden, you get it? That's them! It's as fast as thought, is the point. This occurs instantly, in a nanosecond, in an atom of time, this change occurs. And the dead will be raised imperishable. So at the resurrection, those who are alive and those who are raised from the dead, Those who belong to Christ, both the living and the already dead, are completely free from the penalty, power, and presence of sin and death. We will experience eternal victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The end of 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on resurrection. O death, where is your sin? O grave, where is your victory? It's nowhere. There is no victory except through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, sin and death have died. And we rejoice in that. Of course, the last phrase of the last verse, verse 58 of 1 Corinthians said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not a vain Lord. So in light of the fact of the certainty of eternal life through Jesus Christ, don't let this world blow you away. Don't let it bother you. Don't let it drive you off course. Be rock solid because you know whose you are and where you're going when you die. So, When will the rapture take place? A lot of people would like to know the answer to that question. There are many competent scholars, by the way, with very different points of view on that topic. One of the things that will occur is when you study eschatology, which is the study of last things or the study of end times, humility is very, very helpful. Someone once said, um, it's kind of difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. So, kind of got that. So, what the Bible teaches clearly, somebody already said it, is that Christ can return for his own at any moment. This is a doctrine of imminence, which means that there is nothing on God's prophetic calendar that has to occur before Christ can return. It doesn't mean he's going to return soon from a human timeline. See, most of us think soon is before lunch, right? He says there's nothing that has to occur on God's prophetic calendar, which means he can return any time, and we should be living in light of that. It is so interesting that in the very last chapter of the Bible, chapter 22 of Revelation, Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, promises that he is coming quickly. In verse 7 it says, "...and behold, I am coming quickly, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly, even so come Lord Jesus. You get the message? If the Lord Jesus Christ repeats something three times, and it's the very last things he says... I would submit to you that we should be living in light of that. So regardless of what your particular viewpoint on the end times is, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever label you want to put on it, we should be living in light of the reality that can Jesus can return at any moment and we must be ready to meet him at all times. So what's the point of Paul writing this rapture notion to the Philippians, to the Thessalonians rather? Why did he write about the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the church? He writes them about the truths of the resurrection and the rapture in order to comfort them. Verse 18 gives us the rationale. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, comfort, here's the principle. Because Jesus is coming back, we can look to the future with confidence and courage. Because Jesus is coming back, we can look to the future with confidence and courage. I say that because sometimes circumstances are just Hard. They're difficult. They're a struggle. And you look at the planet and it seems to be literally fragmenting. All true. Circumstances are hard. The planet is fragmenting. Human nature is sinful, and you see it on the news 24-7, right? The answer is: in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, you can look at those future with confidence and courage regardless. Comfort, by the way, does not mean you poor thing. Comfort does not mean sympathy. The word fort means fortis, and that means strength. And the word comfort, come, C-O-M means together. So comfort means together with strength. Together with strength. It says comfort one another. When life is hard, what? Remind one another of this truth. Jesus Christ is coming back, and he's taking us to heaven to live with him forever. So therefore, what? You can endure this present life. We can, he gives us the strength and the power because we know the future. Jesus has made a home for us in heaven, and he's coming back to bring us with him to live forever. That's comforting. It's terribly comforting to know that we'll see our loved ones again. Amen? Amen. It's temporary. Is it difficult? Oh, yes! It's, some days it's heartbreakingly difficult. But we know the end of the story. So, you don't need to stress over like the future's uncertain. The future is very certain. We know the end. God has told us what it is. Death is not final, the grave is not the victor. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death and hell and given us eternal life, and He's coming back. You'll notice that almost every single one of the points I gave you, at least four out of the five, says, because He's returning. Don't forget that. It's terribly easy to forget the fact that he is coming back. He is coming back any time. Let's summarize then, and Tom will come and do prayer and praise. Point one, our hope of life after death is grounded in the truth of God's word. Number two, because Jesus died and rose again, those who believe in him will enter his presence the instant they die. Number three, When Jesus returns from heaven, he will physically resurrect the bodies of his followers who have died. When Jesus returns, number four, he will catch up and carry away his church to be with him in heaven forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 42-54 tells us when he returns, Jesus will give each saint a glorified body designed for eternity. And lastly, because Jesus is coming back, We can look to the future with confidence and courage. I don't know why the Holy Spirit arranges certain passages to come up on certain Sundays, but He does. He knows that we in this room need to hear this today. And He knows we need to live in light of it. If you haven't had your heart broken by the death of a loved one, you will maybe you're the one who will go be with Jesus instantly and they'll be left with a broken heart. They need to know the future. They need to know where you are. They need to know where you're going so they can be comforted when you depart. Because the reality is, we're probably leaving here before many of our loved ones. Amen? All right. Tell them. Tell them. Pray. Tell them. Where you're going and why you're going. Love y'all. Thanks for listening. Read ahead next week, Lord willing, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now that you know, yeah. do.
1: Mana meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Mana, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to mannabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.